1: Welcome to the New Books Network.
0: Hello and welcome back to another episode of New Books on Japanese Studies, a podcast channel of the New Books Network. I am Jeannie Lee from the University of Arizona. Today we're joined by Dr. Hoyt Long and his new book, The Values in Numbers, Reading Japanese Literature in a Global Information Age, published by Columbia University Press this year. Uh, Hoyt is currently teaching and researching about Japanese literature at the University of Chicago. He also co-directs the Textural Optics Lab, which runs several digital humanities projects. This book is an example of taking advantage of computational and statistical analysis methods to study cultural and literary history. Through an array of case studies, Dr. Long brings a whole new perspective into the studies of the canonization of modern Japanese literature. Welcome, Hoyt. Thank you so much for joining us today.
1: Thank you, Jingyi, and thanks for the opportunity to talk about my book.
0: I know a lot of readers are saying this already, but your new book really is very innovative, especially in the discipline of Japanese literary studies, since while well, it's been the most important method of literary studies to read so, yeah. So what kinds of studies have you done in the past and how did you arrive at this one?
1: Yeah, thanks for that question. And thanks for the kind comments about the book. Um, it, it really has been a, uh, a bit of a circuitous journey. Uh, this book is uh, a second book. And uh, my first book was much more um traditional, I guess, a traditional literary study. It was uh, about the writer Miyazawa Kenji, who wrote uh, children's literature and poetry in the 1920s and 30s. Um, And I guess to try to draw a link between that study and uh, this one, as disparate or (laughs) different as they seem, at the very end of writing that book uh, and I, I guess in the process I was still very, int- I was very interested in sociological accounts of literature so I was, I was trying to understand what it meant for me as Awa Kenji, as a writer on the provinces to try to um, depict his uh, home province and his home region in ways that sort of circumvented expectations at the center and um, one of the things that's I think very commonly known about Miyazawa is that he um, was very little known uh, during his lifetime and came only to be recognized uh, after his passing in 1933. And uh, there was a a whole sort of network of poets, both local and uh, metropolitan, that helped kind of bring him uh, into awareness. Uh, And I was interested in kind of understanding how that process worked. Right? And uh, as part of that process, I became understand. I became interested in trying to understand uh, the links between the metropolitan and local poets. Um, and rather than try to keep that all straight in my head, um, I, I wondered if there were ways to kind of understand that holistically. And at that point, I. It was a little bit serendipitous, but I discovered uh, social network analysis, which is uh, basically a method for uh, visualizing networks of things and people. And uh, through a series of workshops led by the NEH, uh, learned about that method and uh, proceeded from there to a whole, to a, you know, a series of projects that tried to use network analysis to understand relationships between poets, and um, that led to a number of projects at the university of chicago and eventually uh, from the network sort of the interest in networks came an interest in text analysis so i didn't want to understand just the relationships between people but whether those social social relationships had any impact or any kind of uh, interaction with textual relationships and at that point oh this is probably you know five or six years ago became interested in text mining and together with um, a collaborator here at the University of Chicago and elsewhere, I began to explore like what it would mean to to try to text mine first English language fiction and poetry, and then eventually uh, try to apply that to Japanese. And so that's sort of the birth <laughs> the birth of the project. But um, yeah, my training and sort of original interests were are very. Um, much rooted in kind of traditional close reading and historical historiographic approaches
0: that's that's really incredible i i'm actually thinking about uh getting to social network analysis myself and yes it's really it's really inspiring to see how you were able to apply those methods in this one and came up with such a um well organized um you, you were able to use that tool to connect everything together. So that's really amazing to see. Um, Yeah. Yeah. And to provide a background for our listeners who might not be so familiar with the methods and theoretical references that this book is based on, um, can you talk about the brief history of the debates Mm -hmm. around using numbers in scientific studies since the 19th century and what about using numbers in the humanities? Since, you know, the stereotype is that we humanities scholars aren't that familiar with numbers. Yeah.
1: Yeah. It's, it's hard to talk about these debates briefly because they are so long, longstanding and acrimonious. Um, and, uh, you know, my book is really just kind of the latest, um, attempt to, uh, to sort of sort out, uh, and, um, sort out those debates and also try to get, you know, to some place beyond them. Um, It's a, you know, it's a, it's not a brief history because the dimensions are global, but they're also comparative. So um, I'll try to sort of talk a little bit about how I approach this problem in the book. Um, And so from the kind of the global comparative perspective Really, I was most interested in this debate as it evolved from the 19th century uh, with the rise of statistics, right? Uh, and statistics were first a kind of an instrument of the state, a way to keep track of demography and keep track of people. Um, but there was also a really kind of, you know, uh, a, a vigorous philosophical discussion happening um, in terms of how we think about the relationship between sticks, statistics, statistics, numbers about things out in the world and sort of how those can be translated into predictions about what will happen or you know, statements about general patterns. Um, and so I use that kind of rise in the 19th century, particularly as it impacted the field of medicine um, as a kind of an entry point into thinking about this long-running debate, what it meant then and, and how that has um, come to mean different things now. But what was interesting to me is that a lot of the conversations that were had in the 1830s in France around medicine actually feel quite familiar to me as someone who's been kind of, uh, and to others who work in this space, you know, trying to think about how numbers might be uh, used for um, study of culture, the study of literature. Um, So I wanted to first show like how, both how the need to, you know, as, uh, as animated and, you know, acrimonious as the conversation seems today, I wanted to sort of place that within the longer history on the one hand um, uh, and then show how uh, literary studies too has, you know, f- from, that, from those early moments in the 19th century has been wrestling with these questions of, of not only what uh, numbers can add to the study of literature, but how to, how to bring them into that study problems associated with that. Um, And so uh, if that's kind of the larger global comparative background, I then, uh, in the early chapter, the first chapter of the book, try to situate that within conversations about literary study and also, you know, um, how that takes place in uh, Japan specifically.
0: That's quite um, interesting since you, I, well, I understand that your uh, research background is in modern Japanese literature, but when you chose modern Japanese literature as the main focus of this book to apply these um, new methods on, were there any um, conditions that makes this area more feasible for digital analysis than mm-hmm. other areas? Because... If I were to um study pre-modern Japanese literature right. <laughs> with such a method that I don't imagine it would go quite well
1: yeah um it's a it's a really interesting question, and I think there's there's actually two questions here one is uh, why modern uh, Japanese literature and then why japanese um, uh, and i I think. In terms of the feasibility, when we think about sort of what it means to apply these methods to Japanese literature, that's actually has not been seen as a feasible, um, at least um, in the context of digital humanities, uh, as it's been practiced in North American context uh and there are all kinds of reasons for this some of which i address in the book um a lot having to do with just the complexities of dealing with uh, an ideographic language and also one that uh does not have the benefit of having spaces between words so um all of these kinds of uh specificities surrounding the language have made it uh you know, the process by which uh, text can be digitized and then analyzed using some of these approaches, it's just taken a lot longer. Um, and so really uh, in, you know, I guess up until a few years ago, uh, digital humanities has has been essentially dominated by English um, and the study of English language texts and particularly the 19th century. Um, so that's one thing this book is actually trying to sort of push back against that tendency and to say, okay, up until this point, there's been this kind of hierarchy uh, in terms of what kinds of literatures get studied. And we need to broaden out the scope of digital humanities uh, research so that it focuses on other languages and other literatures. So in that sense, in, in that sense, it's a less feasible <laughs> path. But now to get to your other question about the focus on the modern, um, Here is where um, you know it's it's really sort of a combination of my own interests. I mean, my field is modern Japanese literature, uh, but also a little bit of kind of historical serendipity in that at this moment, um, due to both reasons of you know, the historical evolution of Japanese language and also copyright, it turns out that the most, the richest collection of digital texts that we have is really centered on uh, the early 20th century. Um, And uh, as I say, I I think, you know, as I talk about in the book and we can talk about in in a moment, you know, a lot of that uh, sort of digitization work has been done by Aozora Bunko. Um, So, in a way uh, through that confluence of forces, you know, copyright availability of digital texts, the fact, you know, that Japanese has become relatively standardized by uh, early 20th century, by late Meiji and early Taisho. Um, this makes um, study of that period much more feasible, even as it sort of sets some limits that I think, you know, um, are at this point, um, hard to surmount, which is, one, it draws a line sort of around mid-Meiji, right, where you have, um, it's hard to work across that divide when you're div- dealing with two, you know, with very different kind of written systems. And then also looking past, you know, really any time past uh, World War II, you're faced with the impact of copyright, which makes it uh, difficult to, to d- digitize text um, and to use them, and uh, has thus sort of hampered what we can say about, you know, anything past that time period. So, yeah, it's, it's a, there's a, there's a kind of a, a trade-off there um, in terms of thinking about feasibility, but it's a, it's a good question, and I think it raises, you know, for future thought, like, how do we, how do we get past some of these current constraints? Indeed.
0: Indeed. And since you mentioned um, Aozola Bunko, I wanted to ask more about this. Um, you use so this book, um, consisting of a few case studies mm-hmm. to show the value in numbers. Uh, many of your cases are from Aozola Bunko. And well, I'm very jealous that you have such <laughs> a database to, to go through. Um, we don't have nothing. Yeah, we have nothing close in uh, pre-modern studies, but can you briefly talk about these cases and how you approach Mm -hmm. these huge amounts of data? Because I think Awazla Bunko has really a large, a huge amount of, um, like you said, early 20th century texts. How did you approach these data?
1: Yeah. So um, as uh, the first step for me, um, as somebody who'd used Aozoro for a long time, but only, you know, as a kind of a, a way to do keyword search, uh, to find individual texts, the first task was really to un- try to understand what, we know it's a kind of a poor representation of everything that's been written, but how poor is it? Like, what is, what is actually in there? And so I used the second chapter of the book to really try to lay that out and to think about, um, you know, what are some of the the ways in which the nature of that collect the way that collection's been created, how that's imposed certain limits, but also perhaps opened up opportunities for um, certain kinds of studies? Uh, and so I, I you know analyze both the contents of Awazora, but compare that to other ways in which modern Japanese literature has been canonized through um, literary anthologies, zenshu, through uh, high school textbooks. Um, and um, uh, and sort of using other bibliographic data, I try to get a handle on you know where exactly Awazora falls short and where it succeeds. Um, and in a lot of case, in terms of sort of the case studies that I then build out in the rest of the book, um, in su- in some instances, Awazora really wasn't sufficient. Um, And so I have to supplement uh, mostly through sort of digitization on my own manual kind of digitization of texts to help uh, basically um, identify the works that are going to help best answer the research questions that I had in mind. So I didn't want to let, I didn't want the limitations of Awa to necessarily guide my research questions. And throughout the case studies, I try to sort of um, balance both what's in Aozora with my own um, research interests. And uh, the case studies uh, intentionally build from a much smaller set of data, uh, you know, really just dozens of texts. And here, uh, this is where I focus on the I novel and trying to understand kind of um, what we can know about confessional fiction, about certain patterns of uh, language within that fiction. Uh, and then from there I work out to think about the diffusion of um, stream of consciousness as a narrative technique uh, between literatures and that requires me to go a little bit more broadly to you know the level of, of hundreds of texts. And then finally in the last chapter, I focus on representations of race um, and ethnic racial and ethnic others in um, literature. And there I really sort of lean into Aota as you know the best kind of, large scale representation of Japanese literature that we have and try to think about, okay, when we have th- the thousands of texts that are there, what might that help us to see uh, even despite, you know, the, the, its limitations um, as far as a, as a representation of Japanese literature. Yeah.
0: That's amazing. And what are some of the exciting resu- results that you found in these numbers? Uh, like, for example, in discussing the canonization of modern Japanese literature, what tendencies have, uh, has the analysis indicated and what changes can we observe from it?
1: Yeah, um, this is a really, uh, I think, an a interesting, important question. Uh, and it gets at a a, re- a critical issue that comes up a lot with computational methods. Uh, and, right, so how do we if we're going to invest time and resources in these methods, we should hope that they tell us something new, right? That they don't sort of replicate what we already know. But I think oftentimes there is a, um, at least there has been, at least in my experience, a kind of a reaction to to the findings to say, well, we already knew this, right? That you're just telling us something that uh, uh, we, have, we have scholars have long since known, Um And uh, I think that's a great, it's important skepticism to have, right? With regards to these methods, we shouldn't just sort of invest our time and energy in them simply because they're, they're new and newfangled. Um, But uh, I'm also interested in the way that that oftentimes that skepticism comes after the fact, right? After you've seen the results. And it's very easy, like at that stage to forget like what you knew and didn't know before you saw those results. so I, I, I think it's important to sort of pause at that moment and uh, and before the kind of the reveal of the results and think about like okay, oh, obviously we we knew a lot of things about how literary uh, history uh, and um, and such worked, but how do these methods help us s- understand that in a in a different sort of way, right? How do they help us come at some of the same questions and the same problems? and perhaps open up um, those questions to new perspectives. Um, So in trying to think about, like to try to sort of make this more concrete, um, I tried to think about some of the ways in which um, uh, computational methods uh, afford a, a new perspective. And I think, you know, it's not always that they show us something that we didn't know before but they show it to us in a way that gives us a certain, uh, a new handle on that, that knowledge. So for example, um, they quantify things obviously, but that quantity can be powerful. So, um, in chapter two, where I do, a, a, a sort of analysis of the contents of literary anthologies from, uh, the 1930s up until, uh, really the early aughts, one of the things I find is that there's a glaring absence of women writers in literary anthologies. Now that anybody could have told, told us that we knew that there, that women writers have always been kind of undervalued and underrepresented. But one of the things that I was able to do was to say, well, actually that level of underrepresentation has been consistent for decades at 10% basically. <laughs> um, and so that, that in alone is a way, you know, that sort of clarifies the knowledge that we had and makes it a value that then one can, you know, work with and hopefully like press back against, like, why is it, you know, what is it that's kept that number so consistent at 10% um, and then how do we sort of, um, how do, how then do we struggle with that reality and, and try to correct it? Right. So it's important. It can be very valuable and politically powerful to put a number on things. Um, uh, I'll give you just one more example. Um, I think this comes out in uh, my case study that looks at the way in which we understand or the history of uh, literary influence and in particular the diffusion of the stream of consciousness as a narrative technique that moved from Uh, English and Anglo-American context to Japan in the, basically the early thirties. So one of the things, uh, it's a, it's a history that's been fairly well covered. Um, So we'd sort of know a lot about the particular texts um, that define stream of consciousness as a kind of uh, technique. We know a lot about um, who was translating it in Japan uh, when they were doing so. Uh, but I found in sort of looking through that history that there was a, there were particular, um, reactions or attempts to narrativize that history. Um, one, and and this is, I'm sort of speaking to kind of the reactions of Japanese critics and scholars. Um, one, there was a sense at the time that this was a momentous kind of landmark development in the history of literature, right? That stream of consciousness, whether it's, uh, exemplified by James Joyce or Virginia Woolf was a, a radical innovation that Japanese writers had to respond to. Right. Um, that was one story that was often told about it. And then there was a kind of a second story that comes a little bit later, which is, well, it wasn't what meant this occasion, but it's, uh, it's influence on Japanese writers was a spectacular failure right? It came, nobody really understood what they were talking about. Uh, and, uh, it quickly fizzled out and it was just this, it was just another sort of symptom of kind of, um, this, this desire to imitate the West or right. It it was just a fad, a passing fad. So, uh, I use some of these computational techniques to try to tell, to add another story, not to, not to sort of devalue those or to uh, substitute for those, but to try to tell another account, which is if we look at, you know, actual, if we, if we try to sort of isolate some of the elements of stream of consciousness by focusing on certain uh, linguistic ac- aspects or grammatical structures, things that show up in the text. What do we see, like about how those how that conf- those configuration of elements uh, come up, you know come to fruition in Japan? And one of the I think one of the more interesting and surprising results um, from the study, uh, basically, you know, I took a bunch of translations of stream of consciousness and also experiments with that narrative technique by writers like um, Kawabata Yasunari and Itō Sei and Yoko Mitzubishi. Uh, I took those identified some of the common elements with those, and then tried to basically go out and search for where those, that configuration of elements appears elsewhere, uh, either before kind of the, the boom in stream of consciousness in 19 really starting in 1930 or after, after it had apparently, you know, supposedly died out in 1933. And, um, what I find, uh, actually, uh, is that that particular configuration of elements shows up slightly before stream of consciousness is in fact, uh, and James Joyce like James Joyce's novel Ulysses before those things actually are translated and become, uh, you know, sort of available to Japanese audiences. So I think there's been a lot of um, kind of criticism of what computational methods can offer to histories of world literature, that they fall into a kind of a, they're limited to stories about how, uh, about how one thing travels from one place to another. And they they sort of are locked into a certain kind of a story of influence. But what I was, what I was actually able to find was that stream of consciousness, if we imagine it as a set of, you know, characteristics uh or or linguistic features used to uh project a certain idea of the self or uh, the mind actually there's there's there are writers who are experimenting with that a little bit before uh it in fact you know enters or becomes concretized in japanese uh in in japanese translation so in that way it's it's less a story about diffusion and more a story about um how in order for something that strange to be received, you actually have to have writers who are already kind of on the path towards experimenting with that, uh, with shifts, uh, with transforming language to move the description or the representation of, of mind and interiority to a different place. And so I think that was, for me, uh, one of the more interesting findings. and And I think a good example of how you can, to come back to this idea of, judgment or um, you can you can take the ability of the machine to I don't want to use the word objective because I think that (laughs) that uh, gets us down a certain path but the fact that a machine just sort of identifies and picks up on regular patterns in a consistent way that it's dumb in some respects and we want it we that's that doesn't seem helpful in some ways but in other ways it can you know it can offer a certain uh, a pattern detection that then we can then use in uh, contrast with some of the other stories we have, which those stories also have their own assumptions. Um, and we can sort of play those off one another and see how they talk to another to each other.
0: I was actually uh, going to bring that up because. So literary studies, I, I hear a lot of people who are outside of literary studies uh, criticizing us for being too subjective. Mm-hmm. Um, yep. they, they think we just read things and we write about what we think. Yeah, But as your case studies have, have shown, we can literary studies can be objective. It's just that we use different sets of tools and yes. we come from a different perspective. Yes. Yes, but the results are... Scientific,
1: yeah, exactly. I, 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 um, I think it's uh the ways that we use evidence, right, and the, the ways that we take evidence and leverage that towards interpretation are different, uh, but they're no less uh, geared towards uh, a kind of generalization, right? About they're, they're, the aim is to make some kind of larger claim, uh, and I think for me rather than say that one method is superior to another, or one mode of gathering evidence is superior to another is to recognize those distinctions and let those those methods sit side by side uh, as much as possible, rather than to um, kind of create this division, which has long been with us, the kind of the the humanities sciences split, um, rather than, Sort of hold that up for time immemorial. Let's try to, you know, think about how, in at the level of evidence gathering, generalization, and knowledge production, there are places where we can kind of cro- talk to one another, and uh, those are those are the sorts of kinds of conceptual bridges I really try to highlight in the book.
0: Indeed, that's amazing. Um... One of the interesting examples in this book is how Natsume Soseki, who is now recognized by many readers around the world as a pioneer in the modernization of Japanese literature, and you talked about using data analysis to study the literary trend of Soseki's time. Could you talk more about this part?
1: Yeah. Um, so he's, uh, Soseki is, is uh, in chapter one of the book, I try to trace this kind of uh, genealogy of in Japan of attempts to think about literature through numbers. And he he sits at kind of the starting point of that. Um, and the reason I became interested in him as a starting point uh, is in part because he had, uh, as he was writing his theory of literature, uh around 1906, um, he was uh, beginning to think about sort of how one goes about studying something like the 18th century English not, uh, English literature holistically uh, and he was playing around with some uh, sort of the possibility of, of doing that through quantification. Um, and one of the things uh, that was sort of interesting to me about that is that he was, he was trying to um, separate out or make this distinction between uh, aesthetic judgment, as located in a particular, you know, an individual subject um, from uh, a judgment that was more scientific. And he would use, you know, the words objective. uh, And and that scientific sort of approach he felt could be achieved through uh, turning certain aspects of literary works into quantitative features. Um, he proposed things like sentence length or uh, rhyme structure, uh, those sorts of things. Now mind you, he never actually is able to does any of this <laughs> uh, uh, or carries this out but I, I was um, I find fascinating the fact that he's even thinking about this possibility. Um, and the reason uh, that he does this he and he talks about this at a lecture that he gives at the time is that he's he's really trying to, uh, decenter certain hierarchies of aesthetic value that have, that, you know, essentially place, uh, Western forms of literature as it, you know, as it, as it stands in late 19th century above literature as it exists in other parts of the world, uh, in Japan included here. Uh, and so he's, uh, What he's critical, or what he what he's mindful of, is that oftentimes these aesthetic hierarchies or these these aesthetic judgments, which take place at a subjective level, are often then uh, universalized as a kind of aesthetic norm, and uh, we then forget that they're actually very, you know, they're very low. They're located in specific subject positions and historical moments. And he wants to use numbers to basically put. Those judgments and and the literatures that are the object of them on a a more level playing field so that he can think about them comparatively, but also I think in the end um, suggest that um, the fact that, you know, a certain type of literature, let's say realism or romanticism is valued at one place at one time in a certain way. Uh, And the fact that a a different type of literature is valued somewhere else in another way is not, uh, we shouldn't um, sort of, we should recognize that the the historical specificity there and numbers are a way to put those two things on a level playing field and thus get out or get away from the hierarchies that would place one object or one type of literature over another um so for him numbers are a way to kind of relativize those uh those personal subjective judgments that have become universalized um and uh i mean it's as i as i write uh, in the book he doesn't actually he's not actually successful <laughs> in that that project um but i think one of the important things uh to note is that in doing that work um he's actually in conversation uh and in dialogue with some of the the work that's being done in uh the uh england england at the time in particular thinking about uh, literature through the lens of psychology and physiological response and i think There's been a pattern, um, you know, this mostly comes from Katatani, but who see his work in theory of literature as kind of an anomaly. Um, But what I try to do in the book is say, actually, no, Soseki, the reason he's kind of drawn to numbers at this time and to this distinction between the aesthetic and the scientific is really out of uh, um, an an attempt to... uh, Treat the literary object as something different, as 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 a, an object that incites certain physical responses in people, um, and he's uh, in that way um, very much in conversation with a number of uh, thinkers in England who are, for the same sorts of reasons, both trying to make literary study more you know scientific and and thus kind of compatible with shifts in other disciplines at the time but uh also offering a kind of a different um approach to literature as aesthetic object and one which you know after that moment sort of gets shunted to the side and so part of why i'm so interested in soseki is is to try to recover that earlier moment and and think about why he turned to numbers and how that that choice uh is in some ways um, that there there are some parallels with the reasons that uh, later thinkers have turned to numbers and why we are doing so uh,
0: today. Fascinating. I think if we still had Russian formalists around, they would really love this part of the book. (laughs) I agree. I agree. And in the last case, you look into self-projection in the modern, uh, well, in modern novels to study the underlining racial discourse across multiple scales. And I think um, with Lee Kotomi winning the this year's Akutagawa mm. award, it's it's again bringing uh, the public attention to this issue. So um, what drew attention to this problem and what can we learn from the numbers?
1: Yeah, uh, um, so I, I think your question gets it uh, really the, the, the last case study in the book, uh, which is trying to, Whereas in the first two case studies, I'm more focused on representations of uh, interiority and uh, psych- uh, sort of, you know, how do we use literature to write the psychological subject. In the last chapter, I'm very much focused on uh, the way that literature is used to represent um, racial and ethnic others. Uh, I, came, I came to that problem in part because it's been a longstanding concern in Japanese literary studies, Uh, as we know, the study of empire uh, has really uh, dominated the field for the last uh, at least good 20 to 30 years. And so I wanted to both recognize that and think about how computation might uh, facilitate or add to the fantastic work that's already been done in that area. Um, And the, the, the problem of, you know, sort of the impact and the effects of empire on literary representation um, or, or on literary output uh, has been approached from myriad ways. Uh, people have thought about it through um, the idea of representation, right? Uh, how uh, you know, through very stereotypical representations, the colonial others are depicted. Uh, They thought about it through things like affect, uh, through the erasure of difference, you know, in the ways that um, colonized writers attempt to essentially rewrite themselves or write themselves into Japanese subjecthood. Um, uh, And and more recently, we have William Bridges, you know, a fascinating take, uh, which is um, less focused on kind of Representation as it's marked on the page, and looks more at how um, what he calls these are called reconstructive readings, where he's trying to look um, past the idea that the inscription of race is is always a process of othering. He wants to see it as as um, something else. Uh, so I entered I entered into this kind of um, conversation, knowing that computational methods are going to be you know, better suited to some approaches than others. Uh, And in particular, I think it can intervene uh, most helpfully as a way to see patterns of racial representation comparatively and at a larger scale. Um, So uh, in the book, I acknowledge there's much about you know, racial representation that doesn't show up on the page. and just, We just can't access it through these kinds of methods which depend on, you know, um, kind of empirical evidence. Uh, but at the same time, there is much that is uh, repeated or regularized uh, and especially if we go back to Edward Said's, you know, famous study of Orientalism, uh, you know, really there, the idea of a kind of regularized pattern of description is at the heart of how Orientalism, Orientalism comes into being. So while it, it seems like a kind of a throwback to, a, you know, an earlier understanding of um, race and empire, um, I I try to sort of bring, bring Saeed and other, you know, sort of other thinkers forward and try to merge computational methods with their ideas about uh, sort of race um, as it becomes sedimented uh, in repeated language. Um, And computation is really good at that kind of thing. It's good at picking up those patterns. And so um, what I uh, try to show in the chapter is, is, uh, essentially how they can help us recover a kind of a larger background or structure of racial representation, um, which we certainly recognize to be there. We know that, you know, part of why um, these stereotypes are so effective and harmful is because they are repeated at, to no end. Um, and so at the one, on the one hand computation helps me recover that larger Structure of repetition, but then within that structure, it also helps us. And I think this is this is a point that I, I really want to highlight because I think it's it's often missed in the ways we sort of superficially understand what numbers do. Is they they reveal structure, but they also reveal differentiation within structure. So uh, to to kind of use the analogy of the map. Um, the computation helped me to kind of create a map of racial representation. Uh, and then within that map, I was able to sort of see the hills and valleys of, of how particular groups are um, represented in one way and not others, uh, where those representations align and then, um, you know, how they vary across uh, different um, kind of racial categories and I think that's something that's r- really hard to do at the level of of kind of individual text and anecdote uh, and so my my hope really is that um, this kind of map will facilitate further exploration of um, of how race um, is and, and how race, you know, sort of at, as, a, as a representational um, scheme gets distributed differently, both over time and across different groups within, uh, you know, for this study, I, I looked at basically writings from late Meiji to uh, the... Um, the 1960, um, so the, essentially through the occupation period. Um, and so that's a starting point. I don't think I, you know, there's, as we've discussed already, there are limitations in what's available to analyze, uh, and in particular, their, uh, colonial writers are underrepresented in the archive. So the map that I've created is going to be distorted in, you know, really important ways, but I think it's a good starting point and, I hope it encourages others to sort of help think about how the map could be built, could be made differently, uh, and how that could then contribute to um, our understanding of race and empire.
0: Yeah, I think it's really amazing that you included this very important topic in your book, and now um, other scholars can see what you have achieved so far, and hopefully um, we'll see more conversations in this area. Um, I hope so too. Yeah. yeah, So, in a broader sense, how do you think digital humanities can be of help to studies of cultures in an age of Mm post-colonialization? And what do you think could be some of the obstacles for promoting these new research methods that rely more on computational and mathematical analysis? That you know, methods that we humanities scholars might not be so familiar with.
1: Yeah. Um, yeah, there are many obstacles <laughs> and, uh, let me talk about those first and then maybe come back, circle back to sort of where I think, uh, these methods can be helpful. Um, we've, I, I, mean, I've brought up some of the obstacles, at least within the sort of the narrower area studies context. Um, there's obstacles in terms of, um, how well developed these tools are for getting at, um, The nuances of language, I think, compared to other, um, uh, well, primarily English uh, works work on English uh, language, um, there are more, much more sophisticated models for pulling out whether it's the nuances of grammatical structure or semantics. um, There's always going to be kind of a a discrepancy um, or an asymmetry between. Uh, what we can do in English versus what we can do in less commonly taught languages or languages that just don't have the same kinds of technical resources. Um, And there's also another obstacle as we've discussed is the availability of texts, right? So the the representation of the archive that we have now is is still very limited. Uh, So an ongoing question is gonna be, how do we expand that? Um, And then within a disciplinary context, just sort of thinking in terms of literary study or humanities uh, more broadly. Uh, here too, uh, I think the, op- the obstacle, well, there's two sorts of obstacles I can imagine. One is at the level of the tools themselves, uh, which uh, require, um, as you know, uh, a kind of a, fami- a certain degree of familiarity with computational and mathematical approaches that we don't often have, and in a in a kind of a moment where time to degrees are being compressed, where we're often f- feel uh, kind of already uh, forced to you know cover more languages and more areas, how can we possibly add another and one that is you know seems you know quite uh, foreign um, from uh, the kinds of work we do? So I think that's going to be. A hurdle, and it's it's going to you know it's going to require thinking about just sort of the very you know the ways that we train students and the opportunities that we provide students who do want to explore these methods. I don't think it's going to be something that everybody explores, but for those who are interested, how do you balance that interest with also the demands of uh, and the you know, the training that is required to develop an expertise in literary study or historical study. You can't have just one or the other. You have to have both and those have to speak to each other. So how do we do that is, is really going to be an ongoing question. And then I think the, the other issue here is just sort of practices of interpretation, uh, at least within literary study. Although I think the same debates are happening in history as well. Uh, although the conversation has shifted, at least in my own Kind of limited time horizon of the last 10 years I think there's been a more openness and willingness to think with numbers and computational methods uh, but this is going to be an ongoing conversation like how do we um, how do we engage with these methods that seem so foreign that seem um, as if they go against uh, the practices of uh, interpretation that we so value and that we've spent, you know, decades developing in literary study, uh, those aren't, there's always going to be a tension between them. And so I think um, really the the only thing we can do as I try to propose in the book is to uh, basically have a foot in both worlds and, and, and try to try to sort of play those uh, viewpoints off one, one another. Um, but, you know, in the end, I think computational methods will are only ever going to be a supplement to the work we do in the humanities and literary studies. But these are you know, these are broad and diverse fields that should it I, I, you know, I think should encompass multiple ways of knowing. Um, and I I, I want uh, you know the book is trying to promote a kind of a path forward where even if we have a lot of skepticism about these methods, we still allow them to be part of the conversation. Um, And part of the reason why I think that's important is simply because um, the nature of um, the ways that we work, the ways that we uh, access archival material, um, just the information age in which we live, is in fact, whether we like it or not, is going to, you know, is, is... is is altering the uh, the kind of the infrastructures through which we um, do scholarly work, and so to the extent that there are these vast kind of digital collections or you know relatively vast digital collections that we didn't have access to before, where it seems like we can do a, you know keyword searches uh, across thousands, hundreds of thousands of documents, we probably should be better about you know, we get better or at least to develop enough literacy so that we can understand what we're doing when we do those kinds of searches, how, um, how we can use that evidence in, um, in a kind of a rigorous and a smart way. Uh, because once you move to that scale, uh, you have to, at least in my opinion, my own opinion is that you have to, um, start to think a little bit differently about how you use evidence. Um, and particularly, uh, you know, once you start to make general claims, you want to be careful that those claims are, um, you know, grounded <laughs> in this very, you know, we have a very long and rich history of, of, of quantitative study uh, where a lot of these practices have been developed. So we should learn from those to the extent that they're applicable. Uh, in order to um, uh, it, right, in in order to um, kind of best leverage the kinds of um, digital tools that are now sort of ubiquitous in our um, in our practice.
0: Yeah, that's, and that's yeah. That, that's 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 how I have faith that we humanity scholars will never be replaced by AI because. <laughs> Critical thinking is still something that um, machine learning cannot quite Absolutely. capture when Absolutely. their data sources are based on all these um, data from the colonial uh, yeah. era. Yeah. Um, so we have left out actually a lot of the technical details of mm-hmm. your study, but I heard that you were going to have another interview on the New Books Network to talk about those.
1: Yes, that's right. Um, I'll be uh, interviewed by Katie McDonough, uh, I think in the early first week of September, um, and she's a specialist in digital humanities. And so um, I'll be talking with her uh, about more of the sort of the the digital humanities aspects of the book.
0: That's awesome. Um, For our listeners who are more interested in the technical part, uh, please make sure to come back in September again to um, hear more about this research. Well, thank you so much for this amazing conversation, Dr. Long.
1: Thank you, Jingying. It's really been a pleasure. And uh, I, I really enjoyed your questions and the conversation. And yeah, I look forward to um, uh, further uh, conversation in, uh, in the future.
0: Awesome. And uh, for our listeners to learn more about using computational analyzing methods to study cultural history, make sure you check out this book. The Values in Numbers, Reading Japanese Literature in a Global Information Age by Dr. Hoyt Long. This is Jingyi from New Books in Japanese Studies. I will see you in our next episode.